thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. A Le Mans that is different in many ways for 2020. Plenty of things that are going to be the same as well. But unique in the fact that there's no spectators here. Uh, but there has been a September Le Mans before in 1968. And do you know what, John? It was because of a sexual revolution. Let me explain. I knew you'd get that in. I knew you would get that in, Mariotti. <laughs> oh, yes. Now, there were student protests in Paris at the beginning of May at that famous university, the Sorbonne. And they were protesting about um, Vietnam, about American imperialism, but they were also protesting that uh, men weren't allowed in women's rooms at night and vice versa. So that's the sexual bit that I bring in. It all got very much out of hand. The unis... um, Universal students started to um, protest in the streets. They were even ripping up the roads and throwing the cobbles at the police. And then the workers joined in. So there was a general strike. The shipyards came out. There was no fuel. Renault, they all went on strike. It was absolute chaos. Ten million people were actually on strike. This is all, of course, in the De Gaulle era. So that was going on all through May. And of course, the Le Mans organisers decided they couldn't go ahead with the race. Of course. De Gaulle disappeared to Germany, actually. And there he got a cabinet together and they announced that he would stand for re-election and everything will get sorted out. And do you know what? It all calmed down before the race ever happened or would have happened in June. Um, he won the re-election. So um, that was the reason why the race was put back. Paul Tarsi is with us as well. Hello, Paul. Thanks for joining us here on Haggerty Radio Le Mans. Were you following motorsport in those days? Oh, my goodness. I was but but a mere child, John. But uh, (laughs) besides that, it was, you know, I I wasn't like Andrew actually being there. My my dad had been at Le Mans from 56 to 66. um, And so I had been steeped in it from a very very young age but yes i i certainly remember all about it and i think it's very interesting what andrew says about the the history the political history in france because one of the things is that nearly everywhere you read there were student there were student protests and that that caused the the le mans 24 hours to be postponed you're absolutely right, Andrew. It wasn't a student protest. It started that way, but it was very, very nearly a revolution. And yeah. uh, so it's a, it's a kind of area that's of interest to me, not least of which because, you know, do you know who it was who was uh, one of the leaders of the student protests and the political protests? was Francois Mitterrand. Mm. Who went? Who went on to be uh, the president of France in his own right for twelve or fourteen years? So that's the background to it moving. And as Andrew rightly pointed out, it probably could have gone ahead in its normal June date because everything had settled down enough by then. But it hadn't. Now, Andrew was a 
uh, a reporter for Motoring News and undertook the journey in, uh, in I believe, a Ford Cortina, Andrew. Is that right? And that, that would have been different. That There's another difference from nowadays. Across the channel, by ferry, of course, no tunnel in those days. And I presume from the channel port down to, down to Le Mans w didn't have the convenience of the payage nowadays. So it was down the old uh, route nationales, was it? Yes, it was. And that was before they had roundabouts in France in my maroon BRM tuned Lotus <laughs> Cortina. Oh, of course. Of course it was. It was. Well, Mr. T of Motoring News fame paid for that. Um, and it was a flying machine, even had Avon Formula Four tyres on it, which lasted about 4,000 miles, of course. Um, anyway, it was a very interesting year because by putting the race back, John, it made it the final round of the World Manufacturers Sports Car Championship. Mm. And there was a big battle going on between Porsche and Ford. Now, this was a very interesting year because this was the year of the start of new three-litre regulations, although the Ford GT40 had basically been grandfathered, so it was allowed to, to run. Now, Mr. Ferrari hated these new regulations, so he boycotted the championship and the race, although there were some, some uh, private Ferraris in the race. But it was mainly Porsche versus Ford going for the championship, and basically whoever won the race was going to win the championship. So it, it was pretty important. Now, Ford had also basically given up their factory team but there was a de facto team in the JW uh, mm. Golf GT40s. Slough's finest. Yes, indeed. And their big problem was that their two main drivers, Jackie X and Brian Redmond, had both broken their legs in Formula One incidents. So for that car, they drafted in the BRM Formula One racer Pedro Rodriguez and uh, Lucien Bianchi from Alfa Romeo, who was an Italian-born Belgian driver. Uh, so... That really blunted their effort a little bit. They had David Hobbs and Paul Hawkins in the second car, and then Brian Muir, uh, Yogi Muir, and Jackie Oliver in the third, while Porsche had um, four of these new 908s with Joe Siffert as their lead driver, and Vic Elford was in another car. There was one car with two American drivers in, uh, one of them being Scooter Patrick, and then there was Stommelin and Neopash. And then also in the race was uh, the first Matra to, to race at Le Mans, yeah, uh, it was Servos Gavin and Pescarolo. And then there was two of the Helmet Turbo cars. Um, they'd been racing all season, but uh, they just didn't go down the straight quick enough. <laughs> and there was um, also um, three factory Alfa Romeos as well. So it was a, a good entry. Uh, and in fact, as well, um, had the event run in June, Alpine and Alpine in the news uh, this year as well at Le Mans coming yes. back for, for next year, wouldn't have been able to have their cars in because they weren't ready and they had nine cars split between A210s and A220s. We'll come back to that and the French manufacturers when we talk about the race. Paul Tarsi, you were then over in the UK. Not the same way to follow Le Mans back in 1968. What do you remember then of, if anything, about the build-up, about the race being moved back, how that was reported? Or was everything, you know, reading Andrew's uh, uh, Andrew's missives uh, under the ARM uh, byline in, in motoring news the week after? For a start, yes, absolutely. And uh, that re reading what Andrew was saying and, uh, and other scribes was very much part of it. You didn't have that immediacy that you have now. Mm. That if, if somebody issues a press release now, 
then it's on the internet within 15 seconds and that therefore you know exactly what's going on all the time and in the in the lead up to a race like this you knew you you didn't know the driver changes you didn't know anything like that and even when i started going to le mans in 1979 you didn't know what was going on very much but i think yeah you you kind of learned that i was at boarding school in in uh, in those times and that at that time therefore you would smuggle your radio into uh, into the dormitory and put it under your pillow because Again, a a change that we see now, the BBC bought into the Le Mans 24-hour race in a big way. And that you would would listen to the news on, Andrew will probably put me right on this, it was either the light programme or Radio 2 at that point. (laughs) Yeah, the light Um, programme, yes. (laughs) The light light programme, as opposed to the home service. Indeed. And uh, that at uh, at 10 o'clock, they would have the news after seeing something simple and that uh, they would then have the news and then it would be the Le Mans 24 hour race has now been running for six hours. And our reporter, Raymond Baxter, is at the circuit and will bring us up to date with the with the uh, uh, happenings so far. And you would get three minutes, much the same way as you get Bob Constantius doing it at the circuit yes. in, in later years. And you'd get three minutes worth. And that would go on. I mean, I think in those days, the light program shut down at midnight. But Mm. you'd then be back on at six o'clock in the morning to see what had happened. And that was all you knew. You didn't know anything else. And and then you'd go out and buy Motoring News or Autosport on Thursday to find out what really happened. Yeah, and fill in the blanks, which is what Andrew was there doing. What was... Can I just dive in there? Um, I should add, in those days, Autocar and Motor took the race very seriously as well. Um, But I'm not convinced... Um, Raymond Baxter was there because this race was between the Canadian and US Grand Prix. And his number two was a most marvellous chap who was called Robin Richards, mm. who was a, a big chap, You're usually completely covered in, in cigarette ash and very, very good, actually. <laughs> uh, but, and one of his party piece was um, to, resu- uh, to say the Lord's Prayer, but changing all the words to London railway stations. It was a most magnificent party piece, actually. But Robin was Robin was certainly there. Raymond Baxter certainly was there a number of years, and what a great guy he was, too. Andrew! But yes, I mean, Paul's absolutely right. It was very difficult to find, unless you were there, to find out what was going on. Uh, uh, and being there, Andrew, actually being there, how easy or difficult was it to actually report the race? Because I presume that timing was rudimentary and certainly wouldn't have been up in screens on the in the press room so you had to do legwork you had to go down into the back of the pits into the paddock and you actually i mean there were there is a whole there is a whole generation of motoring journalists motorsport journalists who consume motor racing even at the track by looking at the screens and never go out the press room it wasn't like that in those days no i mean at the start for the first few hours i used used to do a Paul Truswell. I kept a lap chart, actually. Yeah. Um, that was the way. They, they would come round with a sheet about 20 past each hour, which they distributed in the, in, in the press tower, which is still the, the one that used to be the old press area opposite the pits in, yeah. the, in the big in the uh, tower. Yeah. And they'd come round with a sheet, which would tell you, and it was all in French, but it would give you the current positions and, and 
some of the problems that people had. Mm. And just a bit later than this, but it's a famous story. Greg Grant, who was the first ever um, Autosport editor and the man who founded Autosport, then went on to another magazine. And I was there one year and his translation it was a very hot year, actually. Five or six people actually retired with uh, blown head gaskets. And his translation of the French was uh, incorrect. So all the people that retired with blown head gaskets <laughs> retired with a broken drive shaft. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, t- I mean, I, I remember even um, the first year I went was only eighty nine, but but still, the hourly update sheet is printed, and the local scout troop. Um, were employed to, to bring them round to the broadcast areas and to the TV compound as it is now because we got moved moved out of the Tribune that Andre's talking about opposite the pits many, many, many uh, years ago. Um, before we go into the story of the race, Paul, I'll come back to you. Um, in, it sounds then as if Le Mans in those days, in the 24 hours, was, was probably a in some ways, a bigger sporting event generally. I know it's massive in, in endurance racing and in and in our sport of motor racing, but in terms of a national event back in the UK, and in 1968, that was still before, uh, really, we got into Derek Bell's era in the 70s uh, and, and all of the excitement, but it was still a British race in those days, and it was being covered as such by the national British broadcaster so it was in the general public psyche yes it was and people did understand it rather more and i think that yeah you're, you're back into andrew's bit about the the social times as opposed to the racing times and that in those days this was a foray for the empire into <laughs> the depths of europe that uh, le mans has always been a British race run by the French, and that that hasn't changed since the 1920s and the Bentley boys. But back in those days, you know, that that one of Raymond Baxter's favourite expressions when he used to do a programme called Tomorrow's World, which which you may remember, which was a TV programme. TV science programme, effectively. Very good it was as well. Yes, And, and that one of his standard lines was, and this is going to change the world, and it's British. Yes, and, and, yes. And that this was the kind of thought and that something we still see now and we've seen it with Silk Cut Jaguar and we've seen it with Bentley and we, we've seen it in many, many guises since is that this is Britain versus the rest of the world. Mm. And that I think what we what we saw then was very much Britain against the rest of the world. Uh, and, how and, much, and how much of that, uh, uh, Paul, harked back to the Bentley boys in the 1920s to you know Aston Martin in 1959 the, the Jaguars because it had been a while since there'd been any major British interest at the front of the field but effectively John Wire uh, Automotive the Slough based team lots of good things came out of Slough Mars bars uh, GT40s uh, and of course <laughs> Citroen, Citroen DS uh, as well which were built there for, for quite a long while um, do, do I mean how much of that was marking back and, and hoping for some British success? I think it was. I think it was harking back. And I think it was it was very much about about here we are, the plucky Brits, because mm. those those stories after the news on the radio would be OK. So so and so is in the lead, but they're they're Italian. There's so and so in second place and they're French. But in third place, we have the British Aston Martin. And, and that that's the way it would be, that it would be about 
how the Brits were doing yeah. and how they were getting on and that it would it would get escalated into the news proper by the time that a British car got to the front. So if you had a British car or particularly a British driver, then suddenly that became mainstream news. And yes, it was a big event. And as far as the race is concerned, Andrew, um, at the sharp end of the field, it did turn out to be the battle that people expected between the the Porsche and the uh, John Wyatt automotive Ford GT 40s. And I, I mean, ultimately, that un, th- those unknown factors of the drivers did a very, very... You mentioned Jackie Hicks and Brian Redmond not being there, but Rodriguez and Bianchi... A bit of an unknown quantity for JWA, but actually they drove absolutely brilliantly. Yes, they did. John, remember, this was still in the days when they ran across the road at the start. Let's not forget that. I think it was maybe the last but one year. I think uh, Jackie X's protest was the following year. Mm. Um, So, uh, and just the one thing about that is when they were about to run across the road, sitting in the press room, when they started running, you could hear their feet. On the everything tarmac. was so wow. everything was so quiet. You can <laughs> hear their feet. Off they went, John. And then the next thing, Willie Merez, the uh, famous uh, Belgian driver, driven in Formula One for Ferrari and so on, he hadn't shut his door properly. He was fiddling with the door down the Mulsanne Strait, and he had a huge crash. In fact, he was in a coma for two weeks. He never raced again. And a year later, in an Ostend hotel, he committed suicide. And not yeah. many racing drivers have done that. No, indeed um, not. The, um, yeah, but the race had uh, the GT side, GT40 side blunted early on when the Australian Yogi Muir um, put his car into the sandbank at the end of the Mulsanne, and that was a problem. And then further blunted um, by the Hobbs car, which uh, had been briefly in the lead, um, that had a problem with the clutch. And it was fixed after two hours, but then it blew up. Yeah. The early running of the race, Joe Sippert was actually leading. He, too, had a clutch problem. And so this led the, 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 the unfancied uh, Lucy and Bianchi and uh, also um, the car driven by Pedro Rodriguez well in the lead. But talking of Lucy and Bianchi, his brother, Mauro Bianchi, who was the grandfather of, of the late uh, Jules Bianchi, of course. Yes. He had a huge crash also, and the car, the Alpine, burnt out. So there was a lot of action. There was also rain during the race. Um, the Mitter Elford Porsche, which was very quick, uh, had an alternator problem, and I, I think that car was disqualified, if I remember rightly. So the Porsche effort was, was blunted, and so that meant that the, the one Ford that was running strongly ran to the, to the end, to a great victory and the second uh, Porsche was not one of the latest 908s um, it was uh, the 906 of uh, Rico Steinemann and Dieter Spori so that finished uh, second and then the, the Stoner- and in fact won its class Porsche. because that was the smaller engine car that was the yeah, Swiss was the team wasn't it car. yeah but in those days I think I think it was only 15 finishers of which the last one was the Austin Healy Sprite of Alex Paul, who's still around, and, and, and Roger Enever. Only 15 cars finished. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was, it, it was a very different race. Um, but there's a, there's a terrible epitaph to all this, of course, because um, the following year, Lucien Bianchi was killed at Le Mans testing yes. in a test session um, in an Alpha. And, of course, in 71, Pedro Rodriguez was killed at the Norris Ring. 
Yeah. So they didn't live too much longer, um, having won the race. And it, it seems odd to say as well, but but out of those two, I mean, Bianchi had won, uh, been a class winner a couple of times yeah. uh, before. In fact, the 68 was was his final um, final run at Le Mans. Rodriguez, yeah. who who we think of, of course, as a as a giant uh, yeah. in 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 racing terms, but he'd only finished once in his previous ten attempts. At, at Le Mans, and that was in 1965 when he was seventh overall. So nine retirements in his previous ten times, and and that's why I, I wasn't being disparaging, but they were an unknown quantity for JWA. And yet, Andrew, they took the win, and in fact, that took the manufacturer's crown in the World Sports Car Championship by just three points for Ford over Porsche. Yes, it did. Absolutely right, John. So it was a fascinating and, and very important race. And uh, I've got, I don't remember too much of the detail of it. Obviously, it was over 50 years ago, but um, it was it was great to have been there, I have to say. Uh, uh, he doesn't remember too much of the detail, but he's just rattled it off there as if he was <laughs> having been given 1,200 words in, in Motoring News this uh, th- this week. 1,200 it, it, words, mate. It was probably about 10,000. Yeah, well, I know, I know <laughs> that, but you wouldn't get that nowadays, would you? That's what, no, I, that's you my point. That that's what I'm talking yeah, about. Paul, just uh, yeah. coming back... To, Back to you. So, as we've said, following the race was difficult. Afterwards, um, you know, you read up and you find out. So, Ford win the manufacturer's crown in the World Sports Car Championship, which ultimately, at the end of the 60s, was a bit of added value, really, for the Blue Oval because they'd done so much in the middle and the end of Le Mans during the decade. And, and in some ways, it was not an unfancied win, but with the works, the full works cars not being there, it, it was almost a bit of a Billy bonus for them. It was. And the I think one of the things is that we tend to think of JW as being a, a quasi-works team and, and everything That's that went way, with yes. that. Yep. That the the year before in '67, that they had actually converted a couple of their GT40s into what they called the first of the Mirages, yeah. which had a, a very much smaller greenhouse on the you know on the top, and that it was it was quicker in a straight line. But they called it a Mirage, and they called it a Mirage properly because they went to Ford and said, "Can we?" Uh, can we run this and we'd like to run it with your blessing and your support? And they said, no. <laughs> and that, that that's why they always run it as the Mirage M1 rather than as, as running as a Ford Mirage, which is the, the intention initially. And in fact, to the point that in 1967, when they were very successful in the championship, Ford then could not claim that uh, it was anything to do with them because it was not Ford on the entry list. Ah. And so it was, and, and JW, which, which was, John Wire and John Wilmont, who was a uh, Ford dealer in South London. And the two of them, coincidentally and happily coincidentally, had the same initials, hence JW, mm. that they put that together and that it was Wilmont's money and, uh, and Wire's expertise that created that team. So it wasn't sort of, it wasn't a Ford team in, in disguise by any means. No. It was, uh, there was a degree of blessing, but not a huge amount. Uh, and Andrew, just on the, on the broader subject uh, of Le Mans at that time, 68, end, end of the 60s, um, and what was to come. I mean, we look at Le Mans uh, and there are so many parallels throughout. It's all cyclical, isn't it? You look at that. Yeah. You were talking about the 
the regulation changes at the start of that 1968 season, which cheesed off Ferrari mightily. Uh, we're, in a, we're in a period of change now in the very top class at the sharp end of the field, driven by um, a, a number of different factors, and we needn't go into those right now. But what we've always had with Le Mans, and whether it was moving it to September 1968, um, or the change of regulations, or what we've seen in the last 10, 12, 15, 20 years, we've had the... the the powers that be, the ACO, despite being part of a world championship, the ACO have managed to hold Le Mans as something slightly different. And and there's been times when that's caused trouble between the ACO and the series that it's been part of. And there's times when it's worked well for both. And, and I would suggest that, that, you know, at that time, there was, a, there was a bit of a seed change going on, but it was going to set Le Mans up for a fantastic decade in the 70s. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, of course, Bernie Eccleston absolutely hated Le Mans. Yes. And, you know, he, he caused a lot of trouble with, with his rules and regulations and got close to killing it, I think. Uh, it was just one of the biggest things in motorsport, but the only big thing other than over in America that he didn't control. Mm. Um, but, yes, it's a, it's cyclical. I mean, it's a funny year, this this one, isn't it? Coming to the, the end of the season, I mean, you know, all being well, you know, we know a Toyota is going to win unless they manage to hit each other or something like that. And, of course, uh, you also got the, the double points, and we're going to still go on to Bahrain after this to, to decide this championship. But it's been a funny year. There's going to be a tremendous battle, of course, in LMP2. GT... GTE Pro is a, a little bit different, isn't it? But half the cars we had last year, and I'm sure there's going to be a massive battle on GTE Am. But and what, whatever the rules are, whatever the, the situation with the entry, you're always going to have a, a magnificent atmosphere and a great race, and things will be thrown at it that we never expected. And that's the key, Paul. Sorry, go ahead, Andrew. No, no, that's okay. Right. And that's the key, Paul, isn't it? Because, uh, and I've said this, other people have said this, and Le Mans, the French say, Le Mans, c'est Le Mans. Le Mans is Le Mans. And nothing, civil unrest, national strike, all right, world wars, yes, that, that has put it on, <laughs> on, on pause. But I think we'll allow the ACO that. The, the difficult, the extraordinarily difficult circumstances of this year hasn't stopped Le Mans. And it will be unique because there's no spectators there, which will rob the event of some of the pre-race atmosphere for sure. But the, the challenge of taking on the 24 hours around the Circuit de la Sarte in 1968 in September, in 2020 in September, it's the challenge of the event as much as the challenge of beating the competitors. And that hasn't changed and will not change. No, I think that's right. And, and yeah, Le Mans is Le Mans and always will be. I think you used a, a, a term just a couple of minutes ago of the sea change. And I think that we saw a huge sea change in 1968. It was, don't forget, the first year of the Ford chicane mm. and that therefore it, changed fundamentally the circuit and we've seen that evolve ever since because we saw we saw think of a lap in 1967 flat chat past the pits little squidgy bit round uh, round the f's that there you know there wasn't anything there wasn't any dunlop curve there certainly weren't the the craner curves going down to the the new s's um and then that Tete Rouge was very, very much faster than uh, than it is now. Um, that then you went flat track down Mulsanne, then Mulsanne corner, 
the, the twiddly bit round Indianapolis and Arnage, and then it was flat through White House yeah. all the way up there. Yeah, no Porsche the curves, of course. No, no Porsche curves. So what you then had was the, I don't want to say the beginning of the end because that's, that's overdramatic, but if you think of how many different, um, as the French call them, the piff path of, uh, mm. of the left, right or the right, left, and that we have now on the circuit, that was the beginning of it, that Ford chicane. And I think yes. it's, it, it is both sad and glorious, both at the same time, that the circuit has evolved into what, uh, what it needs to be. As, uh, as, as the boring one in the corner, that uh, perhaps I see it more sad than glorious. But nonetheless, it is an up-to-date circuit now. I think it's going to be really interesting this weekend. I, yeah. I think it's going to be fascinating for a whole range of reasons, that the race is the race and that we we can look at the race and analyze the race. It's going to be really, really strange not to have people there. And I think that, that for me, both working with Radio Le Mans and prior to that going as a, as a punter, that the, the crowd, the atmosphere, everything that goes with it is an absolutely integral part of Le Mans. And, and I think that it can't be, it can't be the same. It, it cannot be the same. I think it's got 50% of the ingredients, and, and that's probably as far as you could take it. But it's, it's still going to be a fascinating race. And now that, let, let's be honest, back to Le Mans is Le Mans. It'll be back next year, yep. providing we're all here. Yep. And, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to following the race, but it won't be the same. And, and Paul makes a good point, and I think that's where we'll wrap this up. The, the track, the event has evolved. And the fact that it has means that we can have the, we have had the era, the glorious, unbelievable era of the LMP1 hybrids coming to an end uh, this year in 2020 with the TSO 50 and its swan song and, a, and a, a new start to the top class next year with Alpine coming back with a, with a grandfathered car, a, a rebellion effectively, an R13, Orica coming back next year. Le Mans will remain the event Sometimes the track, sometimes the regulations will evolve. But as we've said, Le Mans is always Le Mans. Paul Tarsi and Andrew Marriott, thank you for joining us as we've looked back on this Le Mans memory programme. This program is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.